You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Stephen Kistler, research fellow in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, September 29th. Dr. Kistler, do you have any opening remarks for today? Um, yeah, I mean, I, the one other thing that I've had on my mind that I'd be happy to talk about today um, and I've had some questions about is just sort of what the outlook looks like. Um, how are we transitioning into a world of living with COVID? Um, and sort of what does that look like, especially in the context of other you know, respiratory viruses that we've had spread in the past? So also happy to take questions about that if that's of interest. Great, thank you. Um, first question. Hi, Dr. Kistler. Can you hear me okay? Hi. Yep. Um, I wanted to ask you exactly about what you started to talk about was what do you see coming um, over the winter months? Um, you've done some of the best modeling that I remember on the pandemic. And so I'm wondering if you've updated that or if um, what what tea leaves are you reading to, to give us your predictions? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I appreciate that kind remark. Um, uh, the landscape has gotten a lot more complex. Um, and so my job has gotten a lot harder. And so also my uh, projections are a lot less certain, unfortunately. Um, but I can walk through sort of how I'm thinking about the coming months. Um, so I think the first and most important uh, change has been the emergence of the Delta variant, um, and especially uh, how much more infectious it is. Um, that's going to make these uh, the coming winter months uh, more difficult than they would have been otherwise. Um, but I think that there are a lot of other things going in our favor, um, including especially here in the US, uh, quite a bit of underlying immunity, both from previous infection and from vaccination. Um, and so what I expect is that, um, especially in places that were largely spared from a major summer surge, so especially uh, parts of the, the more northern parts of the country, we're um, almost certainly going to see another significant winter wave. Um, I think that it's worth saying that, that I actually expect us to start seeing recurring winter waves of COVID-19 um, in the coming years, uh, more or less permanently, unfortunately. Um, as we move forward, as, as more and more people get vaccinated um, and as we keep getting exposed to the virus, uh, I do think that the severity on a per case basis will continue to decline. Um, but I do still think that this winter uh, will probably see um, in some parts of the country, uh, similar scenarios to what we saw in especially parts of the Southeastern US over the summer, where in some regions, um, hospitals will be very full. Um, we'll have to put elective surgeries on hold. And so I think those surges, again, will be probably geographically more isolated since um, there are different uh, degrees of immunity across the country. Um, but there are still going to be some communities that are going to be hit pretty hard this winter. So I think that's something we have to be really clear-eyed about as we move forward. Um, but my hope is that uh, beginning with this, you know, once we get through this winter wave, we'll start to enter into a phase of the pandemic where it actually becomes that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is more of a seasonal respiratory virus. Um, than this uh, incredibly disruptive pandemic virus that we've been dealing with. So we've still got a little work left to do, um, but my hope is that we're, we're approaching something that is ever closer to normalcy. Can I ask one follow-up question? Um, and that has to do with the flu. I've seen a lot of 
um, concerns that we might be facing a resurgence of the flu after not seeing it all last year. Do you have any thoughts about what the flu might do this year? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I think it's uh, really important that people get their flu vaccine um, this year, um, ideally soon, um, by the end of October. Um, and that's especially true for um, people in older age groups who are also vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, since we didn't have much circulation of the flu last year, I do expect there to be quite a bit of spread this year, um, especially because uh, I don't expect that we'll have nearly the same amount of masking and physical distancing that we had last year, which is really what seemed to suppress flu spread. So because of that, and because um, we don't really have much immunity to carry over from last year's flu epidemic, um, it's possible that this year's outbreak will be especially bad. Um, and what we really don't want to see is this uh, joint epidemic of flu and COVID-19 at the same time. Um, that's you know, bad for individuals and also especially bad for um, our healthcare settings. Um, so getting vaccinated um, and staying mindful of um, you know, all of these same precautions, uh, I think that you know, masking in indoor spaces makes a lot of sense, both for flu and for COVID. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do worry a little bit about the coming flu season. Um, and so uh, definitely getting vaccinated is something I would highly recommend for everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, really quickly, Dr. Kissler, going back to your the first question, it sounds like then what you're saying is that the uh, COVID is probably going to be more of a seasonal vi virus. Is that correct? That's what I anticipate. Yeah, based off of some of our modeling and the modeling of some colleagues as well, um, and based off of experience with previous flu pandemics, um, that seems to be the pattern that a lot of these respiratory diseases follow. They'll cause a major pandemic that's really disruptive for a couple of years. Um, and then after that, set, uh, settles into this seasonal wintertime circulation pattern. Um, so that's that's really what I expect for COVID-19. Um, I don't think it's a guarantee. Um, it could behave differently than previous viruses that we've seen. But based off of our models, based off of previous experience, I think that's the most likely scenario. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, thank you for doing this. Um, I have heard a lot of concern from college professors, uh, including some there in Cambridge and um, other places about uh, having to come back and teach in person. Some of them are elderly, some of them are cancer survivors. And you know, as we've heard that masking has a modest effect on spread, maybe a 10% improvement. I don't think that's very reassuring for people uh, given how many breakthrough cases there have been. And I wondered, what would you say to a professor who was maybe 75 or had had cancer who's being asked uh, to teach in person this year? Boy, that's very difficult. Um, you know, I think that uh, this is, you know, stepping aside from the epidemiology a little bit, but I think that um, institutions that uh, really do have a responsibility to be mindful of both their mission um, and the uh, principally the health and safety of their uh, employees. Um, I think it's really difficult because in-person education um, really does add a lot of value to education. We see that both through uh, K-12 education, but also I think in university education. So um, there's, there's always this, this balance of risks and benefits that, um, that is not really totally an epidemiological question. I think it has to do with much broader values as well. Um, we are in a setting where, um, 
you know, for for many people, um, including uh, you know the seventy five year old professor who uh, who you mentioned. Um, the vaccine protection does seem to be pretty good, and there are breakthrough infections. Um, but in the majority of cases, uh, even if they do cause symptoms, those people are not ending up in the hospital or dying at nearly the same rate. I don't like to see breakthrough infections. I don't. I don't want to see people getting sick from COVID nineteen. Um, but I think that uh, we are going to be living in a world where uh, COVID nineteen infections are going to continue to occur. Um, so I think that you know this this really needs to be answered on a on a case by case basis. It's true that people who are cancer survivors who might be immunosuppressed um, may not have had the same response to the vaccine, and they'll have to behave differently. And my hope is that uh, we would find ways to to compromise for that at an institutional level. Um, that there would still be the opportunity to provide virtual education for those who need to do so, um, and that that would be the case both for professors, but also, you know, there are plenty of students who are also immunocompromised who might need um, those sorts of accommodations as well. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do there um, to make that a reality. And I don't know what the best answer is in the short term, um, but I do think that we need to be working on that very hard, um, especially because this, you know, this isn't going to be the last um, issue that we face where, uh, where we have an epidemic spreading. Um, and we need to keep people safe from it. So whatever we do now, uh, we'll pay dividends in the future as well. Uh, I imagine that might be a bit of an unsatisfying answer, but I think that's the best I can give. Well, as sort of a more a broader follow-up, to, to, it seems like if we are in, going into an endemic situation, um, and the science, everything about the science seems to be telling us that some people are vastly more risk than others, that people like me are not at much risk at all because I'm young and I have had the vaccine. Uh, do we need to get away from a one size fits all policy and just and start really giving people more options depending on their situations and their own individual risk tolerance? Yeah, I, I think that that would be beneficial. And, and to some extent, we're making moves in that direction, um, you know, including, you know, I think some movements in that direction have included uh, the recent approval of uh, third doses of the vaccine for certain groups, um, even though they're not broadly approved yet. I anticipate that they might be broadly approved. And so that may be getting back towards that one size fits all approach. But um, it's, it's really common for a lot of medical interventions to be targeted towards the individuals who need them most. And I think that we'll start to see that more and more with COVID-19 as well. Um, one of the things that has blocked that so far is that we're still learning about the virus a lot. We haven't had the vaccines for all that long. Um, and so we're still in the beginning of learning about how our immunity works and how that immunity looks in people of different ages and with different medical backgrounds. As we learn more, I think that these recommendations are going to get more and more personalized. Um, and my hope is that uh, it's not, it won't be just up to individuals to shoulder that burden of uh, figuring out what they need to do and how they need to do it, that there will also be a lot of this institutional support from universities, from places of employment, and so on, um, that, uh, that lay the groundwork for, for people to, uh, to still you know, fulfill their, uh, their jobs while keeping themselves safe. Um, and I think we have a lot of the technology we need to do that. Um, we can develop a lot of the infrastructure to make our workplaces safer. And I think we just need to do that to share the burden between institutions and individuals. Thank you. Uh, next question. Uh, hi. Um... So you were talking, you were talking a little bit about like what uh, might be to come, you know, a little bit farther down the road. But I, I guess I'm just curious, like how you 
skew what's happening now. Obviously, things are still really high in a lot of places, but they are on the decline seemingly, you know, particularly in places in the South that had these sort of summertime surges. Is that just like, I don't know, it's almost reminiscent of last summer in a way, or is it just sort of the sort of, you know, when you look at like local geographies, sort of that wave pattern that has kind of defined everything? Like how, how do you assess what's happening now? I mean, in some ways it does seem to me like a, uh, almost almost a repeat of, of what we saw last year. And we did see a lot of um, major summertime spread in the southeastern US. Um, and the that wave um, sort of transitioned into the autumn and winter wave that spread sort of in this wave up towards the northeastern US. Um, and that's a that's a pattern, it's a, a geographic pattern of uh, respiratory virus spread that we actually frequently see. Um, that uh, it's very similar actually to what happened in 2009 with the H1N1 swine flu pandemic as well, where we saw a lot of spreads starting in the southeastern US and then sort of spread like a wave northward in the fall and winter. Um, I think there are a lot of different factors that, that contribute to that, um, including you know, indoor crowding, which is tends to be more common in the summertime months in the south versus more common in the wintertime months in the north. And, probably some element of, uh, of the weather meteorological factors that contribute to spread as well that, that we're still sort of trying to disentangle. Um, but again, I think that part of the reason that we're seeing such a pronounced wave that, uh, that seems to recapitulate what we saw last year is, is in large part due to the Delta. Um, I think that in the absence of this new variant, um, that wave might not have been as pronounced. I think that it might've met a lot more resistance from the underlying immunity that we have in the population. But Delta is just so much more infectious um, that it's sort of behaving um, almost like we would expect a new respiratory pandemic virus to behave. Uh, the underlying immunity helps a lot and really reduces the severity of infection and deaths. But in terms of transmission, um, we're seeing something that looks, uh, you know, looks a lot like previous waves of COVID-19 and even previous waves of flu pandemics. Got it. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi, yeah, this picks up just a bit more on the outlook uh, because I've seen some modelers talk about how we've gotten our surge out of the way uh, ahead of the winter, you know, and this idea that, we, and then there's some estimates that between vaccination and prior infection, where like there's some 90%, uh, you know, of the population have some level of, uh, you know, some degree of, of immunity. So I'm just curious, could you just kind of address those to get your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, I, I think that's a possibility. Um, you know, a, a lot of the places where we saw surges this summer um, are also places with relatively lower vaccination rates. Um, and so, uh, so I think that there's, um, there is reason to believe that, that maybe, you know, we've, we've seen a surge in many of those places. Um, now we're coming up on the wintertime months where we would expect to see a surge in um, other parts of the country, but maybe those places are more highly protected from vaccination. Um, also, many parts of the Northeast saw really strong transmission waves very early in the pandemic. So there's quite a bit of underlying immunity from natural infection as well. Um, so I think that's that's possible. Um, I, uh, based off of my own experience with past epidemics and, and some of our modeling, um, the the seasonal effect um, is, uh, I often weight that a little bit more strongly than, than some other epidemiologists and modelers. Um, I, 
from the models that I've worked on, the models I've built, and some of the experience with past epidemics, it really seems like uh, the increase in transmissibility in the wintertime um, really can play a very strong role. Um, and, uh, and so I still expect to see some surges. Um, and I think that uh, we're not, based off of what I've seen, the evidence that I've seen, my understanding of underlying immunity, I don't think we're totally out of the woods yet. And I don't think that the summer surges will have totally uh, gotten us out of a situation where we'll have continued surges this winter as well. Um, I really hope I'm wrong though, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think that there's, there's still enough people who have um, been infected or vaccinated long enough ago that their immunity will have waned to a point where they can be reinfected. Um, and I think that that will allow transmission to continue. And when you layer the wintertime transmission over the top, it's hard for me to believe that we um, have really completely gotten this major surge uh, behind us. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Stephen. Um, to, uh, I wanted you to continue to elaborate a bit on this. Um, you mentioned um, the, the expectation of a surge shifting from south to north, uh, but you didn't, uh, at least I didn't hear you differentiate between vaccinated northern parts of the country and unvaccinated northern parts of the country which in places like Idaho and Wyoming, they're clearly in a surge now. <clears throat> How much protection will the vaccine provide in Northern regions that have high vaccination rates? And do you expect the proportion of the population that is unvaccinated in those areas to get hit pretty hard? Yeah, I do. I mean, um, so I think that <laughs> it, it I'll try to be very careful with, uh, with my terms here because I think there are a lot of different layers of things going on. So um, I do think that we will see a lot of cases, especially amongst the unvaccinated um, members of uh, other parts of the country that haven't yet seen their major Delta surge. Um, I think it will hit the, both the individuals and the communities um, that are more unvaccinated hardest. Um, but the thing that I'm most closely watching, and that seems to be the strongest correlate of um, how hard these new waves of COVID-19 are hitting in the sense of causing uh, severe illness and death is really the proportion of the oldest age groups who are vaccinated. Um, the number of uh, observed cases, of severe cases, of hospitalizations and deaths is uh, extremely tightly connected to how many in those older age groups are vaccinated. So even if we have lower vaccination rates amongst younger age groups, um, you know, ideally we would have, have high vaccination across all age groups, but um, as long as the oldest members are vaccinated, um, then I think that that will go a really, really long way towards protecting our hospitals and healthcare systems from seeing the sorts of surges that we've seen. We'll still see a lot of spread of COVID-19, but my hope is that it won't be as uh, disruptive to our healthcare system and won't cause as much severe illness and death. Uh, because those those most vulnerable age groups will hopefully be protected. Now, of course, that's that's not true across the board. Um, there are still plenty of people in those older age groups who have not been vaccinated and are still vulnerable. And I think those communities are the ones that probably have, um, they're the ones that I'm the most concerned about as we enter into these winter months and we start to see further surges of Delta going forward. Um, so so that's, I think that that's, Hopefully that, that elaborates a little bit on uh, on some of these things that we've been talking about previously. Yeah, that helps with the nuance. Um, I, I wanted to follow up with um, your your comment early on that you expect it to be seasonal. 
Um, did I hear you say right after this winter? So, you know, will are you expecting these winter surges to be bad enough essentially to um, get us to a point where, um, you know, it, it will become seasonal, say next winter, we won't expect surges this summer? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, um, that, that, that is my guess. Um, but I, you know, I think that <laughs> if I had to put probabilities to that, I'd say maybe 70-30, that 70% is that we'll, um, we'll, we'll start to see sort of, uh, we won't see as much of a surge this next summer and it'll start to be winter time. It could be that we still have sort of one more year left or something on that order. Um, assuming that this virus behaves as I imagine it should. And, and that's based off of the fact that between vaccination and natural immunity, um, by the time we get through this coming winter surge, um, really most people probably will have been either infected or vaccinated at that point. Certainly not everyone, but, but a pretty high proportion. And, and once we reach that point, then we'll have underlying immunity carrying forward and hopefully providing enough protection during the summer months um, to keep transmission low during that time. Um, again, it might take a little bit longer than just this winter, but, um, but based off of my estimates of how long immunity lasts, how many people will have been infected or given the vaccine, that's my best guess is that this coming summer won't, I ideally won't resemble the, the two summers previous. Thank you. Uh, next question. I wanted to follow up on what you said about the thing you're watching most carefully is the older percentage of um, older people who are unvaccinated in a given area. Um, can you give some, like, what, what are you using? To, what are you, um, what age cutoff are you giving there to define what an older person is? And um, what percentage do you, when you see a percentage, do you look at it and go, wow, they're in trouble? You know, where? Yeah. Um, so, uh, Generally, I mean, uh, um, uh, apologies to anyone who's, who might be already in this age group, but I, I, you know, I've been thinking about 65 and up as um, the category that, I, uh, that I'm really paying attention to, but that's really partly because um, a lot of our data are reported with that cutoff. Um, so uh, vaccination rates in people who are 65 and older um, is a, something that a lot of public health agencies are measuring. Um, Unfortunately, uh, it seems like, so, so I wanna talk a little bit about the experience um, in Florida over the summer. Now, Florida is interesting because um, especially relative to their neighboring states in the Southeastern United States, they actually had pretty high vaccination rates. Um, and one of the things that uh, surprised me about the Florida surge is that they still saw a lot of hospitalizations and deaths relative to the initial Delta surge in the UK. And as far as I can tell, one of the key differences between those two places is that in the UK, um, the vaccination rates among the very oldest people were extremely high. Um, and in Florida, they were, they were high, but not as high. Um, and we're in a scenario where the, the people in those older age groups are so much more vulnerable to severe disease um, and to death that even 5% um, you know, shy of 100, um, if 95% of those age groups are unvaccinated, that remaining 5% can still um, really contribute a lot to severe disease and death. So, I mean, we really, uh, to prevent um, 
a lot of these hospitalizations and deaths in those age groups, um, we really need near 100% vaccination rates in those older age groups. Um, and uh, we definitely want to see high vaccination rates in the younger age groups as well. We are seeing young people being hospitalized with COVID-19 too, and I think that's really important. Um, but it remains true that the older age groups are the ones who remain the most vulnerable, and we, we need vaccination rates there to be as, as high as absolutely possible. Are you all set? I think so. Yes, if not, yes. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a great answer. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, I'm sorry. I forgot to ask earlier. Um, you were saying model, like right now, sort of modeling and predicting is, is, is more difficult because it's, the landscape is more complex. And I guess it, it, I just wanted to ask why that is. Is it just because the varying levels of population immunity in different places or like what else is making it more, more difficult at this point? Yeah, so it's um, exactly, it's varying levels of population immunity, um, varying uh, different ways in which that immunity was acquired, whether it was through natural infection or all of the different vaccines that we have available. Um, also behavior is changing a lot in ways that um, it's hard to know how to, uh, how to incorporate into our models. Um, it's changing differently in different places. Um, some parts of the country are still um, frequently wearing masks indoors, others, have really given that up a long time ago. Um, and it's really hard to weigh these things together in part because we don't really even know how to measure them in the first place. So the main things are immunity and behavior. Um, but both of those things have become a lot more uh, heterogeneous across the country and more complex. And that's made the modeling a lot more difficult. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. I, I wonder, you know, your, your uh comments on the um, your projections for the the pandemic you know as it becomes seasonal does it track the 1918 flu pandemic yeah um, and in fact that that pandemic and the 2009 flu pandemic are sort of two of the places where I'm uh, drawing some of these uh, projections from um, in 1918 we uh, saw a couple of waves of uh, that um, H1N1 flu, uh, and they those waves. There was one major early autumn wave, um, but there were also waves in the summer, sort of similar to what we've been seeing with COVID nineteen. Um, but then, as we moved forward, um, by the time we got to nineteen twenty twenty one, um, it. That, that very same virus became a seasonal flu virus and continued circulating as a seasonal flu virus for years afterward. Continued to mutate and change, but it was, it was derived from that original virus. Um, a very similar thing happened in 2009, even though in 2009, that virus was much less, uh, much less deadly than in 1918, but the, the transmission patterns were actually quite similar. Um, and so that's uh, exactly, I think that a very similar, my, my guess is that a similar pattern um, is what we can expect with SARS-CoV-2. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Yes, there. Yeah, I forgot great. To okay. Um, yeah, when you mentioned Florida, it, it reminded me that it's been a little bit challenging this summer to get good data on who these people are who are being hospitalized in this most recent wave, whether it's that small percentage of old people who aren't vaccinated, whether it's breakthrough cases among the old and vulnerable, whether it's young, unvaccinated, who, who these people are. It seems like we need that data. Are there places that that data can now be obtained? Is it a state by state thing? Um, what do we know about it? 
Uh, less than I would like to. Um, it's it's data that we would love to have, and um, it, it would be it would be really helpful for uh, developing policies for the coming months. Um, but you're right; it's uh, it's more on a state by state and even hospital system by hospital system uh, scenario, um, and and that makes it really difficult. Um, and it, you know, it is, it, that is very, that is very frustrating. And, and one, one might be tempted to say, you know, why don't, why don't we centralize everything and make everything standard and uniform? And, and I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, that said, I think that uh, early in the pandemic, um, the ability to, um, for different geographic locations to adjust sort of how they uh, responded to the pandemic um, made made some sense, and and I think that you know there there is a balance between um, sort of allowing uh, different communities to uh, to decide what's best for them for response, and then also uh, collecting data that's useful on a national level. I think that we should be edging towards more of the centralized data collection. I think that we should have more standard ways of collecting these data because they're so immensely valuable. Um, but I also understand why we may not have gotten to that point. So. Um, it's a big lack that we have right now, and it's something that we should be working on. Um, and I think people are, um, but it's a big gap in our knowledge right now. Um, and in this case, in particular, in terms of knowing who's been hospitalized, who's been hospitalized, how old they are, what their vaccination status is, what their previous infection status is, um, we don't have very good information on that at all. And that's uh, that's something that I do think we do need to change. Do you learn much from looking at Israel and the UK and other places where uh, there is a little bit more standardized data collecting? And it can uh, are there lessons that we can draw from those countries? Definitely, and those those two countries in particular are where a lot of our information is coming from right now, precisely because they do have that kind of centralized data collection. Um, it is still difficult um, because uh, behaviors differ, um, seasonality of the virus differs. Uh, age distribution and comorbidity distribution differs uh, between the countries. So it's hard to make a one-to-one -one comparison, um, but they are very helpful. Um, and so we've been relying on the data that they've been collecting quite a bit. Thank you. Thanks. Um, looks like nobody else has questions right now, but I do. So we'll go ahead and ask some, well, I'm waiting for people to raise their hands. Um, so uh, October, starts on Friday. Do you have any suggestions for how people should act during Halloween? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of the same principles hold that we've been talking about all along, um, but, uh, but we can make them Halloween-centric. Um, I mean, what better opportunity to wear a mask than Halloween? Um, and uh, try to incorporate it into your costume in any way that you can. Um, but the principles that uh, you know uh, that we've been bearing in mind throughout the pandemic really do still hold, um, which are that uh, outdoor gathering is better than indoor, um, and that ventilation is really important. Masking remains helpful, um, and uh, and so I think that you know there there are ways there are ways to socialize um, during. Uh, Halloween, but there are ways to do it safely. And it's it's the same things that we've been uh, sort of talking about all along. I do think we need to be mindful of the fact that uh, Halloween coincides with when we 
you know, if, if the seasonal element of transmission really does end up playing an important role in the winter surge, Halloween is when we're probably going to start to see that surge coming on and potentially circulation of the flu as well. Um, one thing you might consider doing is getting your flu vaccine in the next week or two so that you have immunity to the flu by the time Halloween comes around. That's, I think, would be a very good idea. Um, and so, but yeah, I think otherwise, same principles hold. Um, we can uh, we can socialize, um, but I think doing it safely makes a lot of sense. And we don't have to worry about transmission of the virus by handing out candy or anything like that and physically touching the candy that somebody else has been. Exactly. I mean, a surface transmission really seems to be not particularly important. So um, in terms of handing out candy, I would be much more mindful of the face-to-face -face interaction you're having with people from door to door than I am of the candy itself. So uh, that's that's the opportunity for a transmission there. Um, and so wear your mask, um, maybe stay a few steps back, and uh, but uh, enjoy your candy. No bobbing for apples. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> although there's many reasons not to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I've been seeing a bit more in the last couple of days about the R1 mutation. Um, I'm sorry, the R1 variant. Um, is that something to be concerned about at this point, or is it more um, an unknown because we just don't know that much about it? Yeah, so with that variant, we're still in the early stage where, where we've seen ourselves repeatedly um, as these new variants emerge. Um, it's something worth paying attention to, for sure. but. Um, uh, when I say worth paying attention to, at this point, I'm meaning mainly epidemiologists. I don't think that it's uh, something that uh, that we really need to be concerned about on, on a large scale so far. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen any new variant emerge that has been able to stand up against the Delta. There have been a couple of situations in which a variant has emerged and caused a localized outbreak, but by the time Delta comes in, it really seems to outcompete um, and outspread whatever variant is there previously. Um, this R1 variant could uh, could be, um, you know, it's it's something that we'll have to watch and and see how it plays out against the Delta in various settings. Um, but to my knowledge, right now, um, we don't have good evidence that it will be able to outcompete Delta on a large scale. Um, so it's something we'll be watching very closely. But I I, I don't think it's something that I would uh, worry about on a large scale at the moment. Thank you. Um, question. Yeah, uh, just uh, I was looking at the uh, recent uh, CDC study about, you know, where they looked at hospitalizations uh, among vaccinated and unvaccinated people, and they were finding that about 14, you know, in June and August, about 14% of hospitalizations were among vaccinated people. So I'm just curious if this, how people should make sense of this number, and is this, does this, is this what you would expect, or um, as people are trying to understand the risk with breakthroughs? Yeah, so um, this particular statistic is a really difficult one to interpret. Um, uh, what I mean by that is specifically the number of vac the number of hospitalized people who are vaccinated, um, and that's because as as vaccination rates increase, we expect more of the people who are hospitalized to be vaccinated. Um, because you know the, the thought experiment is that if you have a population where ninety nine point nine nine percent of the population is vaccinated. And then you say that, you know, well, half of people who are hospitalized are vaccinated. Well, that's actually still very good evidence of the vaccine being very effective, because if you drew two people at random, you'd be almost certain that those two people would be vaccinated. Um, and so really, when we're thinking about the number of 
hospitalized people who are vaccinated, we need to compare that to vaccination rates in the overall community. So the higher vaccination rates are in the community, the more people we expect to be vaccinated in the hospital just by chance. Um, and so as vaccination rates increase, I, I do expect a greater share of people in the hospital to be vaccinated as well. Um, but I also expect the proportion of people in the hospital who are vaccinated to be much lower than the proportion of people in the population who are vaccinated. And that's the indication of vaccine success um, and of vaccine protection. Um, so it's really difficult because it's that that number is is a is sort of a moving target um, and can actually lead to some pretty alarming and uh, in fact misleading headlines um, when you start to say that even sometimes even a majority of people are who are hospitalized or vaccinated. Um, but really what matters is not that raw number, but the relative proportion of people to the people in the population who are vaccinated. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I had a, a request for a fact check. So if nobody else has any questions right now, I'll go through this. But if somebody else has a question, just uh, pop up your hand. Um, they're looking into misinformation stemming from social media users who misinterpret the VAERS VAERS data to mean verified and causal events regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Could you answer these questions? If not, uh, I can talk to you about these offline. Any sure. thoughts on the misinformation stemming from the database, even though there are many disclaimers about that VAERS database? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. It's like, um... I and and many of my colleagues are really think that it's it's important to make these data available, available to the research community, available to the public. Um, but you're right that uh, misinterpreting a uh, relationship where you know these these data frequently report somebody receiving a vaccine and then some kind of health effect, but it's unclear whether or not that health effect came from the vaccine. Um, for a someone who's just looking at the data um, who may not be aware of these caveats about using the data that they may not represent a causal link between vaccination and that health effect um, it can be very alarming I mean, it can seem like the vaccine is causing all of these different kinds of health effects um, a, a knee-jerk reaction might be to say that well maybe we shouldn't be making these data as publicly available as they are or maybe they shouldn't be as detailed but i i really hesitate to uh, to go that direction, because I, I really do think that empowering people to make, um, you know, data-based decisions um, about their health and about community health, making data accessible is really important. Um, one thing that may help with this sort of thing is um, having, uh, and the CDC at certain points has done this fairly well is, is making data available, but also having uh, sort of the, the first interface with that data be um, a couple of brief high-level visualizations and summaries of that data that put it into context. Um, so currently it's possible to download that data from the from Bayer's um, and look at adverse reactions that followed vaccination. Um, but that doesn't put it into the context of how frequent those adverse reactions are in the general population. And so that sort of thing is what I would like to see right on the first page. Um, so coming up with those data and saying, these are the most common uh, medical events that follow vaccination. Here's the prevalence of these things in the population as it is. Um, and maybe even here's the prevalence of these things in response to the infection that the vaccine prevents in the first case. So one of the examples that, that falls under this is uh, the reports of myocarditis um, post COVID-19 vaccination. 
there actually does seem like there's probably a link where getting vaccinated does slightly increase the risk of myocarditis in young people. Um, but it doesn't increase it nearly to the same degree that having COVID-19 does. And it actually doesn't increase it that much more over the rates of myocarditis in the general population. So putting things into that context and having that be the first thing that a person sees when they come to approach those data, I think might go some way towards preventing that misinformation. Preventing disinformation, which is the, you know, the, the intentional use of those data uh, to push an agenda forward um, is much more difficult, but I think that that's an entirely different can of worms. Um, for misinformation, where it's just a misinterpretation of those data, I think that having these high level visualizations and summaries can be really helpful. Thank you. Um, there are a couple other questions you may have answered these already. How beneficial do you think the database is to the public and to the medical community? Uh, so for the medical community, I think it's extremely helpful. Um, I think that uh, there are um, issues with the data for sure, in that it is generally self-reported. Um, and so it doesn't meet the standards of a uh, you know, super well-conducted study that we would want to base a lot of these decisions on. But it is um, a pretty large database that does uh, give us a sense for what sorts of symptoms can follow vaccination. So from that standpoint, I think it's, it's extremely beneficial for the medical community, if only to um, prompt further research into some of these links that are hinted at by the database. I think that it can be helpful for the public as well. Um, but again, it, uh, it's, um, these data can be difficult to interpret for sure. Uh, it, it's, uh, it really does require looking at them fairly skeptically um, and recognizing all of the biases that can creep their way into the data. Um, the database itself does a very good job of explaining what these things are. And because of that, I do think that it is a good resource for the public. Um, all of that information is there. It has a very good guide for how to use the data. So as long as those things are, are heated, um, I think that a person in the general public can actually derive a lot of value from these data as well. Um, and so, so I, I'm, I'm really glad that it exists. Um, and, uh, but I think that, you know, as with anything, using it wisely is, is, is critically important. Um, last question, and this, again, I think you kind of covered, uh, what precautions can be taken to reduce the possible misinformation or improve the database since its creation in the 1990s? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, I'd mentioned some of these high-level summaries, but we can also think a little bit about, um, you know, should we, should we be changing the way that these data are collected in the first place? I think that um, building off of some of the surveys that are done by the CDC, for example, um, they have some databases where they, where they have actually proactive surveys that um, ask people about their healthcare encounters um, and ask people about their vaccination status um, and actually run lab tests. Um, I think that supplementing these data um, with more proactive sampling could be really helpful. Um, and it could help us understand um, to what degree the data is biased um, and how we should be interpreting it in the context of the overall population. Uh, since the 1990s, you know, one of the big advances that we've had is with uh, digital data collection. So it's much easier to reach people through um, computers, through cellular phones. Um, and because of that, I think that we have new opportunities for gathering these kinds of data on a larger scale um, in a more unbiased manner um, than uh, through some of the self-reporting that, that the Bayer's really still relies largely on. Um, 
so that's what I would like to see is both the high level summaries and um, sort of a revision of how the data is collected in the first place. Thank you. All right, looks like that might be it. Um, Dr. Kissler, do you have anything else you'd like to say before we go? Yeah, I think that's all. Thank you. This concludes the September 29th press conference.